This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. Among other things, I'm an executive coach and the author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today, we'll talk about the work implications of climate change. We know the crisis is huge, but the good news is the considerable progress in clean energy and climate-related technology. Of course, the situation is complex, and our guest today, Linda Kinney, says that we're starting an entirely new economic era. Some call it the climate economy or the age of decarbonization. And of course, the sweeping change in our economy is transforming the workforce. Linda is a global legal advisor on environmental, social, and governance matters, and she is passionate about the possibilities for climate tech. I listen to Linda's predictions because I know her career has given her an up-close view of major technology shifts. She worked on the world's very first wireless spectrum auction. She played a key role deregulating telecom. She advised Hollywood studios during the digital revolution, and she was a thought leader behind the federal government's Smart Cities Initiative. Most recently, Linda served as the global head of product regulatory and ESG legal at Intel. She'll tell us a bit about her career, including her years as a federal regulator. She'll describe how we might leverage past lessons to accelerate the fight against climate change. And she'll offer tips on how you can get smart about sustainability and add value to any organization. Linda, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It is always fun to have conversations with you, and I always learn something. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Bev. I really appreciate being invited on your podcast. I just love Jazzed About Work. I really like how thoughtful your questions are and how you deal with some of the most pressing issues of our day. Well, today we're going to talk about a a pressing issue and an expansive one. So it's going to be hard to squeeze all of this in. But even though climate change is a massive issue and the workforce implications are many. I want to start, as I always do, with a little bit about your own career path, how uh, you got to be an expert on some of the things we're going to talk about. Now, I've known you for a long time, and I recall that you went to UVA Law School, and then you headed back home to California to join a big law firm. But I think, if I'm correct, you left that secure job to go and live in Albania and work on Albania's first environmental laws. Is, is that correct? And how did that come about? Yes, actually, that was one of uh, the biggest risks I've ever taken in my career, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely worth it. Uh, so at the time, um, it was just after the fall of communism. And there was a really big effort to build democracy in Eastern Europe. And I thought um, both a friend of mine was working in Poland at the time, and it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to go and work on helping a country 
develop its very first institutions from a democratic perspective. And I was an environmental lawyer, so I went to work on the environmental laws there. And my soon-to-be husband worked on the criminal laws. And um, he is of Albanian descent, so that was the tie to Albania. Uh, but it was really a huge adventure for us. And one of the things I did when I arrived, um, I came over well-prepared. I had my code of federal regulations with all of the environmental laws. And I realized very quickly that that was not going to be helpful. Um, first of all, the country was really in a state of political and economic chaos, like a lot of the countries in Eastern Europe were at the time. And even the big trees lining the beautiful roads were being cut down so people would have um, fuel for their heating and their cooking because electricity was intermittent and the pipes were broken so we only had water twice a day. So I realized that I needed to think about how to look at things from their perspective and I mean just for example the only Xerox machine in the country was actually located in a kiosk in the central square. So I couldn't even make copies of the CFR that I had brought along with me. And it occurred to me um, once I got there that I really needed to think about how do I look outside the organization and avoid trying to reinvent the wheel, even though we were really starting from scratch. So I thought about it and it occurred to me other Eastern European countries were also going through a similar process and they had parliamentary systems uh, that were probably more similar to Albania's than our US constitutional system. So I reached out, I actually traveled to Budapest, to Hungary and worked over there with some of the specialists who were also developing this environmental framework. And that was a huge lesson for me, that there are peers out there that you can consult and can work with you to develop whatever it is you're trying to develop. And again, don't reinvent the wheel. And that's kind of become a little bit of a motto of mine. So well, that explains uh, uh, something about your career. I've known you, as I said, a long time, and you you tend to look at every development as, as an opportunity. That's a wonderful way to approach life. You don't get ruffled, and I think maybe that was partly just inherent, but partly after that experience, the rest must seem doable. Is that right? Yes, actually, that's a great observation. I often, when I'm confronted with a situation that really seems like there's no way out or no way forward. I think back to my time in Albania and I think, you know, if we were able to, and, and really the folks in Albania who were so incredibly resilient and able to make this transition from an isolated country for 40 years to a new democracy. Um, and I, I really feel like there's nothing that we can't accomplish um, moving forward. Well, you took that very um, positive attitude and came back to the States and um, back to Washington. Is that when you went to the FCC? And if so, how did that come about? Yes, I went to the FCC and it turned out that um, 
one of the partners I worked for in the, my, the big law firm got appointed to the Clinton administration. And I looked, I thought about it, and there were so many new things happening at the time. It was just a wonderful time to be in D.C. Um, for example, uh, the very first project I worked on was the world's first spectrum auction. And um, the FCC was doing some really interesting things, trying to introduce competition into the wireless. And at the same time, there were so many companies out there who were innovating and doing interesting things with Spectrum. So there, were some, there was some legislation that passed that enabled the FCC to open up the Spectrum to more commercial wireless providers. And now we have so much competition in the wireless um, market and pretty much most people now have a cell phone. It's, it's really remarkable uh, the change that occurred as a result of that policy decision. Well, you were there in the early days and you had a really uh, close-up look at what was happening with the internet and with all the different kinds of things in, in telecom. Now it sounds like what you're doing is shifting your career to focus on clean tech. And, and I've heard you say that there's a parallel, that what's happening now in clean energy is reminds you of that. So what are the parallels? Why is it that you think 2023 is the time when everything is changing when it comes to energy? Yeah, so back when, so after that first, the wireless auction, then the next legislation that was passed was the Telecom Act. And that was really the beginning of broadband services. We actually wrote some of the very first rules uh, that deregulated the telecom industry. And we confronted so many of the same sorts of things that the climate, that really the energy industry is grappling with today. So here, a few examples are, um, Really, the internet is made up of a network of networks, and that's also true. There's no single grid in the U.S. It's really a patchwork of operators. So there's a lot of similarity there. The permitting process um, and also transmission and interconnection were all challenges we faced uh, when we were trying to build a, um, a national broadband network. and. Um, that's the same thing is true now that you have to be able to interconnect with different transmission lines. We're going to have to have construction to be able to move solar and wind power from some of the states in the south where there's lots of sunshine and be able to move that to the north or the northwest where there's less sunshine, maybe in the winter. So very similar types of issues and we have incumbents we're grappling with. Then it used to be the telco providers, and now it's the it's the different companies that basically provide fossil fuels. And we have again the state jurisdictional issue, and there's a patchwork of states, and they all have regulatory regimes that are overlaid on the federal regime. And it, it just feels from a regulatory perspective like a big challenge, but we've been here before. And I'm really so optimistic that we'll be able to, from a regulatory perspective, 
really advance what's going on in the climate tech world um, in a way that we were able to do also with the broadband network. Well, the climate tech world is, as I've, I've heard you say, it's turning into a, a different kind of economy. And it's no longer just little bits and pieces scattered around. Everybody, it feels like, is getting involved. Is, is, is that right? Is that why you say it's a new economy? Yes. Uh, 2023, in my view, is the year. Really a pivotal time in history. And why do I say that? Well, first of all, everybody or so many people are being touched by some of these climate events. So people are experiencing floods. Look at the wildfires. It's not even just the West Coast. Folks in New York uh, experienced some of the smog drift um, that was occurring from Canada, for example. Um, There are rising temperatures and everybody feels that. So there is an awareness that people really can't deny anymore that the climate and their own living conditions are changed. So that's number one. Number two, there's been landmark legislation passed. So last year with the Inflation Reduction Act, Congress and the Biden administration uh, really unleashed about $350 billion to help with climate change. And those are in the forms of grants and um, loans, could be tax credits. And there's, they fueled an entire group of climate tech companies and the innovation I'm here in the Silicon Valley now. And the innovation is just incredible. I've been meeting with lots of founders and lots of VCs. So the investment is pouring in. There was over $50 billion in venture funding in 2022. So we have this trifecta of legislation, innovation, and private investment, just like we had back in the early days of the internet. And when those three things come together, that's when things, in my opinion, really take off. So some of the barriers to things taking off are, of course, the complex policy situation um, that you describe. But um, some of it is um, just our the way we have such political divides here. How, how is it possible to change so quickly when there's so much polarization going on? How do you start? How does the country start? That's a great question, Bev. There is definitely some polarization going on, and you see that particularly with the ESG context. So ESG, that is something that I worked on for Intel. I was the head of uh, ESG legal for Intel. And we really, uh, Intel, thankfully, um, has been investing for many years, actually a couple decades, in clean energy and has received the Barron's Award for the most sustainable company for a number of years. So Intel in many ways was ahead of its peers. But what is important is that all of these things like ESG, and when I mean when I say ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. 
And that's really that investors in particular are looking to the companies and want to invest in green companies or companies that are using green energy and really have net zero commitments. And a lot of that is because consumers are wanting to buy products that are more sustainable. And also millennials and some of the younger generation want to work for companies that have a commitment, especially like a, a net zero commitment. So to get the best talent and to be able to sell the products, really you have to be focused on these things. So from my perspective, a little bit of it is language and using terms like ESG or, or climate. Those may be polarizing, but at root, the basic concept is really similar and, and really it's something that everybody can get around because I, I was at a conference once fairly recently and there were a number of VCs on a panel and one of the investors said, you know, the thought of saying that investors cannot consider ESG um, it's it's similar to telling somebody, well, you need to cross this highway, but you can only look one direction. That wow. was super powerful to me. So part of what's happening, it sounds like, is that the, the clean energy and, and lots of other technologies are are actually becoming affordable. So aside from their politics, and aside even for their caring about the climate, people, organizations, and individuals are wanting to get this less expensive, uh, more sustainable energy because it's, it's good for their economy. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And part of what happened with this legislation is as these new technologies um, are, are really supported from a federal government perspective, we have, for example, the Department of Energy just invested in eight companies that are really trying to bring fusion to the market. And we're going to see more and more research and development in, in new technologies to achieve our goals and to reduce, really, bend the curve is what people are talking about. It's really um, not just uh, lower your emissions, but then you also have carbon capture technologies, which have historically been kind of niche developments. So you have different scientists and others involved in a sort of niche area. And those things are all becoming mainstream because we really have to accelerate what we're doing in the climate space in order to meet some of these very aggressive goals. And if we don't move faster, if we don't remove carbon from the environment, experiment with new technologies, whether it's feed for cattle to reduce methane, for example, that's another really interesting project that's going on. Or how about investing in um, cement, the cement industry and being able to inject that with carbon and therefore have a net negative cement product. These are all new technologies that folks are working on that to me are very exciting and, and it really makes me hopeful about the direction we're headed as a country. So 
It's easy for people to think of clean energy as maybe some solar on their roof or um, maybe uh, buying wind power for what they're doing, but it's, it's much bigger than that. We're talking about technologies related to um, not just energy, but just how all of our natural resources including agriculture, have, how they're taken care of. And does that turn into all kinds of new jobs? Does it turn into an entirely different kind of workplace structure? Yes. So one of the estimates out there from a job perspective is that the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act is going to result in approximately 900,000 new jobs annually. I mean, these are jobs that haven't existed before, but are in this climate tech space. But it's not just those new jobs. Really, what is so different in my mind about 2023 really harkens back to what I observed when we, when the internet first started. You know, when it first started, people didn't have computers on their desks. They didn't have laptops. They didn't have phones that they were able to access information, and yet all of that has become mainstream. What I predict is that all of this sustainability, working sustainability into our daily lives, into the work environment, into products, into companies, is going to become really as common as using your phone or accessing the Internet. So maybe you'll drive an EV to work. Uh, maybe software engineers will be considering green software, just ways that they can reduce the footprint and more, more efficiently. Or it could be that the companies are trying to reduce their footprint by um, incorporating solar and wind energy or hydro. So I think there's going to be such an integration of sustainability into companies and into people's jobs that it's really going to become um, second nature in, in five or ten years. Now, how much of this is going back to um, ESG policies? Is, is this the kind of thing that uh, corporations and other big organizations are already committing themselves to and um, trying to um, change their practices and everybody knows it, or is this still very much at the beginning? I wouldn't say we're at the beginning. I think from an investment perspective, I have yet to talk to a VC, even the major VCs, all of them have some sort of fund or some sort of investment in some green energy products, or some kind of sustainability initiative. And I think the what, what we're seeing is a request or a demand from customers. So from an Intel perspective, for instance, a lot of the um, large uh, data center or cloud service providers, whether it's Microsoft or um, Amazon, AWS or Google, all of them want to make sure that they can meet their own net zero goals. And this is also really uh, interrelated with AI. 
and you wonder, okay, how are AI and the climate related? Well, as people really transition to AI, they use more and more processing power. And that processing power then has to, requires more data centers, more storage. And those data centers are very costly to cool. So all of the data centers have to think about how do we use liquid immersion technology or how do we cool those data centers with renewable energy? So these things are all happening both behind the scenes, but also more and more people are becoming aware of the importance of reducing their footprint. But there's one topic I want to mention as well from a regulatory perspective, and I think this is really important and again a parallel with what happened in the broadband space. So companies and, and these regulatory regimes of which in the EU in particular is very far ahead, they're very prophylactic, they're requiring companies to actually report on their footprint. And so if you ever want to do business in the EU, I mean, this is a must have now, very important, must have, it is no longer a nice to have, which is where we've been for many years. So if you want to be able to be a successful business, this is not something you can ignore. And in fact, the most forward thinking businesses are getting ahead of the curve and they're gonna be able to do this cheaper and more efficiently. But one challenge from the regulatory perspective is standards. And I think that's really important because in order to have, from an investor's perspective, you have to be able to compare apples to apples. And we haven't been able to do that. Um, and without standards in place, which are being developed by international bodies, that's a real challenge for companies because nobody wants to go out there and spend a lot of money and then not be able to compare to what's going on with peers and somehow be at a disadvantage from a return on investment perspective. So that's a really important issue. And when we were at the FCC, one of the things we, we were challenged with was measuring broadband deployment. So how do you measure broadband deployment? How do you measure progress and what's going on with metrics? If, you are, if the cable industry is entering the broadband market and the telcos are, but all of those footprints are different. So the cable footprints were very different from what the telcos had. And there were rural telcos and there were large telcos who had very large footprints. And none of it really was, it was really hard from a government agency perspective to figure out these metrics. So one of the things that I learned very early on in my time at the FCC, I had some wonderful, wonderful leaders and mentors and coaches was, you know, don't ever curse the darkness. Be the person who lights the candle. That's hard for a lawyer because as a lawyer, you're trained to really look for risk and problems. So yeah. applying that uh, um, to this problem that we were confronting, what I thought about is, is there a common metric? Is there some way we could measure the progress? And I came up with zip codes. So Every company is going to have to send out a bill, whether they're a cable provider or a telco, and that's going to go to a zip code, and the zip codes are a common metric. So they actually were able to, we, we did a rulemaking proceeding, we adopted zip codes as a metric, and we were able to build a map of the country 
based on the rollout of broadband, based on how much broadband was in every zip code. And I really think that's the type of principle we need to apply also in um, the the climate space. We need to be able to establish standards and metrics. And maybe zip code isn't the right metric here, but we really need to be able to standardize and develop metrics and data and compare apples to apples in, in that context as well. So is there an international gathering point for talking about these kinds of standards? How, where is, um, it sounds like the U.S. is a little bit behind, but but where is the U.S. engaging with other countries? and What kind of forum? Yes, actually, there are definitely standards development bodies. And one of the challenges as a lawyer is whenever the EU develops standards that are different than the U.S., it really puts countries in a bind. So one of the places where the climate issues are being led is through the UN. And the great thing about the UN is it's an international body. But the other thing we're seeing as a result of um, the privacy regulations and the fact that there were different standards developed in different countries and regions is we're trying not to make that same mistake here. And so even the EU is really making an effort to try to get together with the US and develop some standards that are similar. And by the way, standards are different for different industries. So the semiconductor industry is gonna have different standards than say um, some of the other players. Um, so it, it is a gargantuan undertaking, but there are some really smart, talented people who are focused on this. And I do believe that we're going to get there. And, and one way to do it, again, is even informally, and this is one of the things we did at Intel, is put together a um, more informal industry group to measure, to be able to have a standard for measuring embodied carbon. And, and that's the type of industry, again, hearkening back to my experience in Albania, the same reason I reached out to colleagues in Hungary. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, and we all should not be operating in silos in, in this situation. It's important to be working together and across providers, across industries, because this is, a, this is not something that any one entity or organization or individual can do on their own. Well, it feels like there's reason for optimism about fighting climate change, because so many organizations, so many people, so many parts of the world are facing up to it and digging in, and there is a lot of progress. But I want to go back to the progress that um, involves jobs, because a lot of our listeners are always interested in where the jobs are and how do they prepare, or how do they learn about trends. So do you have any suggestions for somebody who's thinking, oh, gosh, I would love to be part of this shift. I would love to find a way to work in this area. Is there, how do you begin? Yes. So a few resources, and I can just tell you what I did. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. There are some wonderful podcasts in this um, topic, and you can listen to podcasts. Uh, I really enjoy the ones that interview founders because those they really are at the cutting edge of new technology. Um, but there's also um, podcasts where you can 
learn about what's happening from a science perspective or a standards perspective or whatever it is that you're interested in. So, and in fact, you can even Google list of best climate podcasts. So um, there's lots of resources out there. Uh, and that the other tool I really think is great is LinkedIn. So there's the ability to use hashtags to follow certain groups. So you can do hashtag, you know, climate tech or hashtag green jobs or sustainability. And I even have hashtag women and climate investing. So every kind of sub group you can imagine um, that will bring things up into your feed. You'll learn about conferences. You'll learn about climate week and just being involved and getting to know people, ways to volunteer. And I think the other two things I would mention are one, don't forget about your alma mater because every university these days is building um, different incubator projects or sustainability initiatives or net zero commitments. And so you, you can also offer your help to some of these groups or the engineering school who's working on some cool project. I know that's true with UVA, for example, my alma mater uh, is working on really interesting projects in this area. And then last, I will put a plug in for chat GPT. So you could easily tell, ask them, you know, please assemble a list of climate companies in San Francisco, for example, and ChatGPT will develop a list for you. So there are some incredible tools out there now um, where people can get involved and get information. And the more you learn, uh, really, the more you understand the big challenges and the more you, you can contribute. Well, that, that is good advice. And by the way, I say this often, but anytime you're looking to make a shift or you're feeling s stuck, just learn something new every day. It almost doesn't matter where you begin. It just, once you start that habit of kind of diving in and learning something, it's going to take you someplace interesting if you just keep it up. Well, Linda, thank you for your insights. I always um, uh, enjoy... Um, talking with you, but I, I particularly appreciate your coming on today because I know you have such an understanding of these massive transitions, and I I hope you have a great time in the coming years. And as you're uh, wading into um, clean tech, it's it sounds like you're in an exciting place. Yes, I, I'm, I'm very excited about this. I think we are at the beat. We are in the early stages of the next really big economic, political, social trend, um, not just trend, but we're, we have some big problems to solve. I'm really excited about uh, bringing my talents and my experience working in lots of different industries and with a founder and a big company and um, in a developing country. And I'm really excited about networking and getting to know more people in this space as well. So please, um, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Linda I. Kinney, and I really look forward to the progress that we're all going to make together. I do too. And thank you so much, Linda, for being here today. Have a great day. Okay, great. Thanks, Beth. Today, we've been talking with lawyer and clean tech expert, Linda Kinney, about the climate economy. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, 
Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that you may not have to change jobs in order to play a role related to clean technology. As the climate economy rolls forward, almost any organization could be thinking about a sustainability plan. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and please come back soon. Thank you.